Calls with Cura, Stories from the Art World, is brought to you by the Cura Art Team, recorded during an unprecedented year and as a celebration of our community. We are fortunate enough to know and work with some of the best in the art sector and are delighted to be sharing their fascinating and inspiring stories with you throughout this series. We hope you enjoy learning more about the wonderful world we work in. Please forgive us for the sound quality. These interviews were recorded at home whilst in lockdown. Aubrey Catrone is an international art historian, appraiser and provenance researcher. Aubrey earned an MA in History of Art from University College London, specializing in the documented histories of art objects and is a USPAP compliant associate member of the Appraisers Association of America. With an art gallery and academic research background, Aubrey founded Proper Provenance LLC to provide her clients with the tools not only to historically contextualize art, but also to shed light on attribution and legal title within the international art market. Aubrey has researched artworks including paintings, artifacts, works on paper, prints, and sculptures spanning the 4th century BC to the 21st century AD. She continues to volunteer with the cultural plunder by the ERR Jus de Palme database. We have actually never met Aubrey in person, but we were immediately fascinated by her expertise in provenance research and how it relates to Kira Art's mission of creating a legacy for collections. This episode was recorded in New York City, Los Angeles, and France. Well, thank you so much, Aubrey, for being with us today and doing this podcast. Um, we're really looking forward to hearing more about your story. Um, and I think firstly, it would just be great to know kind of when your interest in art began. Of course. Um, thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm like um, introducing me to the world of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess interest in art is something that I find really hard to pin down. Um, but I would say that I was kind of exposed to different types of art from a really young age. Um, as a child, I spent most of my weekends studying the violin in Boston at the New England Conservatory. And each of those trips that I took into the city, I drove, well, my father drove me past the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and having been born in the early 90s, I kind of grew up in the wake of this, what has become the largest unsolved art heist in history. Yeah. And was preliminary, just really fascinated by something that was kind of shrouded in all this mystery, but also the unprecedented media attention. And that was before I'd even gone to museums. Um, and when I went to the museum for the first time, I was introduced to salon style hanging which I had never really experienced before. And was just kind of in awe of being the fact that you could be so immersed in art. Um, And what I've come to learn about her is kind of her idea of what it is to view art in that, you know, she removed all context from her paintings, just hanging them on the wall so that you could derive your own sense of a piece or your own emotion associated with it. And Um, walking through there, I just became so astounded by this, you know, the new idea against what I guess we call the white cube. And also the fact that when you came to these empty frames on the walls, I was trying to place what had been there before, imagining what the room would have looked like. 
and kind of looking at this different aspect of what I was surrounded by and what was missing. And I guess also kind of this idea that following this case is probably the closest I've ever become of a closest I've ever come to becoming a conspiracy theorist, which is kind of. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But I believe so. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so did you go on from kind of to harness that interest into studying art history? What kind of, at what point did you do, did you decide to, to do that? So I studied art history for the first time in high school mm-hmm. and then did a lot of advanced historical research in college and essentially, I guess, was always really trying to combine art history with historical and archival research. Um, and as an undergraduate, I, the way that I always kind of think about it is I was taking a history, a World War II class. It was taught by a couple and one was an expert in Western European history and the other was an expert in Eastern European history. So they taught World War II from both sides, which I was just, you know, in awe of because I'm that type of person. And for a research paper, I stumbled onto never having heard of it before the um, systematic plunder of cultural property by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And that was just kind of really what got, got the ball rolling in the idea of I can combine my passion for art history and I can combine my passion for history um, into something that is both looking, like looking at both aspects of this historical and aesthetic. And um, so I just kind of went on from there, cultivating my knowledge of art history, the art market, um, and then more specifically, the study of provenance research or the history of art objects. And um, kind of moving through these different areas of the market. So I did um, a postgraduate program in art, crime, and cultural heritage protection. Um, I worked, I've worked in a gallery. I got my master's degree, as you both know, at UCL in history of art. Um, And also worked for a bespoke family office when I was living in London before kind of branching out on my own. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us about um, starting your business, Proper Provenance, um, when you founded the company and what led you to doing so? Of course. Um, so I came to, I guess, what I would call the first iteration of Proper Provenance in 2017, I believe, when I was living in London. Mm-hmm. And the idea rose from working with and researching blue chip art, mostly impressionist and modern um, with the family office that I was working at and identifying this idea that there's identifying a hole in the marketplace and a continued need to mitigate the risk of building an art collection in the 21st century. Because I was encountering a lot of what, I don't want to say resistance, but people not thinking that they need to have updated information. Yeah connected to their artworks. And I like to think of it as um, provenance is not static. It's something that continues to evolve. Yeah. So when every time there's a new technological advancement in the 21st century, um, there's new information coming to light. So from the time that you buy a piece, even when, even a year ago, let alone 30 years ago, 
the information that you acquire with that piece could be completely different by the next time you look to sell it or loan it or put it into the public sphere. So I was thinking along the lines of helping mitigate the risk of helping collectors or organizations fight back against these issues that they might, that might arise that weren't foreseen upon purchase. Mm-hmm. I guess you kind of already touched on this, but can you expand a little bit on kind of the importance for creating provenance, not just for an individual piece, but maybe for a whole collection and how that research really helps protect the works for the future? Yeah, so that's something that's really a hallmark of what proper provenance um, is involved in. So similar to the manner in which your company is aiding its clients in building a legacy of their collection, provenance is kind of the backbone backbone of that legacy. Mm. Um, And so kind of to begin with, we have to dispel this misconception that provenance is only needed for Holocaust-era assets, which is something that seems to be Mm -hmm. very very pervasive. Um, But I like to think of it kind of along the lines of buying property. Um, You wouldn't invest in a property without doing a title search and a home inspection because you want to know before you make such a large investment if there are going to be any problems with the future of your ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, we don't have anything in place like that for the art market. And we kind of fall into what I like to call the cycle of good faith, which is that we get complacent and sellers trust buyers and buyers trust sellers and we don't want to ask any questions for fear of offending someone. So information is kind of caught. We have this copy paste mentality of provenance from one source to another, Mm. but at the same time, we want to make sure that we are compiling documentation. So it always seems very dry, but I like to put provenance into a different perspective in that, One, it's allowing us to know the story and travels of these artworks, but also helps you contextualize your own collection. Mm -hmm. If you are collecting a certain type of art, you want to build the story about why you are collecting it. And and if you have different stories, I've worked with collectors who love to tell about when they first encountered an artist or they first encountered a different piece. And we add that all to your personal story. But at the same time, we're mitigating the risk of potential legal disputes, um, such as authenticity or title or things like that, and increasing valuations. So when you have all of this documentation compiled, um, one, it's kind of streamlining the process for when you are seeking an appraisal or you're entertaining donations, because the people that you're working with don't have to go out and do that, do that research. Yeah. And so having all of that readily compiled within your chosen cataloging system, whether it's a database and hopefully making our lives easier digitized and not paper files, um, you can just send it off and it's ready to help with resale donation inheritance or any method of deaccessioning. 
Um, I've spoken with curators at museums who say that there's so few people there that are working on researching donations that to have all that information readily readily available to them really increases their ability to take in donations. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of having full documentation is really important with value as well, because when you're able to prove a longstanding chain of ownership, there is usually um, a materialistic side to that in that we're able to increase valuation. Yeah, I feel like what you're doing is kind of really important for now, but then it will be in increasingly important in the future. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that um, it's also really important, you know, to start your provenance, even if you're buying contemporary work. Yeah. Because we want to start that story, you know, from the first owner, because even five years down the road, um, a verifiable trail of ownership and everything that comes with it is just as vital to placing a piece on the market. Mm. Yeah. Um, especially when we look at things like um, the Nodler scandal. Yeah. Where people were, you know, just buying art because of the Nodler name, trusting the Nodler name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and making very large um, payments that were ultimately undermined by both lack of documentation mm -hmm. and also scientific analysis. Yeah, I feel like it's just as important, if maybe it's not slightly more when you're buying from, from contemporary artists. I mean, especially, I know artists themselves kind of exchange works, or if you've got a particular mm -hmm. relationship with an artist, you may have a kind of more relaxed approach to the, the buying part. So may just think, oh, uh, you know, be a bit more kind of blasé about that process and not get the adequate documentation from them because you're dealing with another person rather than went through a gallery. Mm -hmm. You don't have that connection to the person. So you could be a bit more ruthless about making sure that you get the paperwork with it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, it's, and it's also kind of like, you don't want to treat it like a transaction when you have a personal yeah. relationship with someone. Exactly. Exactly. So you're like, oh, it's a gift. Great. Thank you yeah. so much. It's beautiful. I love it. And then five years later, you're like, oh, I want to sell my gift. Yeah, exactly. And people are like, well, is this actually a gift or where did it come yeah. from? And we yeah. also come, yeah. if we come across this all the time when there's condition issues or, you know, we're dealing with a private collection where a work needs attention. And like a lot, you know, in a lot of these cases, it is a contemporary work. There's something wrong with it. And, um, you know, maybe the artist isn't around anymore or it's very difficult to kind of trace who to actually go to to get advice for conservation treatment um, and restoration so it's kind of all goes back to just having the provenance <laughs> for the work it's just tied up in so many different aspects and I think a lot of the time there's this kind of risk reward ideology applied to it from the idea of like oh well if I spend uh, over a million dollars, then yes, I guess I should get provenance. But mm -hmm. if I spend under a million dollars, do I really need to have any documentation? Um, or do I need to spend the money for someone to help me bring all this documentation? And in the long run, I would always say yes, because you're probably not going to spend anywhere near what you've spent on a piece. 
just updating your files and making sure that you have that so that you don't have to go through the headache later on. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting field to be involved in, I think. Yeah. I'm always telling stories, but always kind of working from a market perspective and an art historical perspective at the same time. Yeah. And obviously it's, it's that, that, that kind of balance that you're talking about is, is, contentious in itself because um when you're dealing with the kind of buying and selling of course maybe galleries or auction houses may be um slightly reluctant to pass on certain information if they think that it will inhibit the sale so there's all that Mm -hmm. kind of balancing act as well that you'd have to think about yeah exactly and kind of verifying even the listed provenance you know, from a gallery yeah. exhibition or um, at an art fair. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen many times in different places provenance or heard stories about provenance that's edited Yeah. Um, just for whatever reason. You don't want to know who was there yeah. in the provenance or you don't want anyone to know that it was you. And all of those things, like, we definitely want to main- help you maintain the exclusivity of your collection. Um, but at the same time, we want to protect future collections and help build that legacy because every owner adds a little something to your yeah. piece. Yeah. And I kind of think of it in the way that, um, you know, every way we read a painting, for example, is based on all of these different iterations of who's owned it and what does that ownership mean, but also where has it been exhibited and in what context has it been exhibited? Mm-hmm. And all of these things could be completely different based on genre or artist, um, and kind of thinking, I mean, for example, if we think about impressionist, French impressionist painting, you know, those were developed to be in contrast to the, the figurative canon, mm-hmm. um, and so originally had this idea of being separate or other, and then moving forward, we're very popular and collected, but then um, looted by the Nazis very heavily and labeled degenerate. Mm-hmm. And even knowing that um, and knowing where a painting has been could help you rationalize condition issues. Um, mm-hmm. For example, if you know that something was in storage or not in good storage or taken somewhere, um, helps you kind of trace back what it is that you need to find. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and do you have a career highlight or a particular project that you've worked on that you've enjoyed or, or are proud of? Um, yeah, as I'm sure you both know, the best ones are always under NDA, which is kind yeah. of like the worst part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you just want to scream from the rooftop, "This is so much fun! Look what I did!" Yeah, um, I would say kind of from an academic and research perspective. Um, I have been working on some more research about this like presentation of documentation and provenance. And circling back to that idea of the cycle of good faith, I um, gave a conference paper in London a few years ago in 2018, um, which was based on research of a Monet painting Mm -hmm. that I had encountered um, 
and it had numerous Holocaust era red flags in the provenance. Um, but it'd been to auction at least three times, but this was kind of through the eighties and nineties. So obviously those sales are occurring at a time when provenance wasn't at the forefront of anyone's mind. Mm-hmm. It was more this idea of authenticity, wanting to make sure that the painter really did paint the painting. Um, so kind of as an exercise and experiment in this idea of how are paintings like this still able to circulate the market, even with these red flags and encountering people that saying, oh, well, it's been to auction, so it can't have any problems. Um, I decided to investigate this problem that's, you know, in auction catalogs and in the catalog raised name. Mm-hmm. And I ended up discovering that the first private owner listed was incorrect for every iteration of reprinting of the painting's provenance since like the 1960s. Um, And I did that through like basically very um, just kind of looking at, and it was very simple mistake. Probably it was a handwritten record. Um, And it was the difference between kind of a V and an R in, in the person's name. But when I found that, then I was wondering, you know, has anyone ever even bothered to check these other red flags? Um, So this is where we fall into what I kind of, what what I've already told you, I like to refer to as the cycle of good faith. So just reprinting, copying and pasting and saying, well, it's been here. So obviously it must be okay. Um, And that was something that I found really exciting and like to kind of introduce to people as this proof you know, that what you bought in the 1980s may not be what you see now in 2020. Mm-hmm. So interesting. It really is like a, a little um, treasure hunt. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's very addicting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. And um, just, I would like to just touch on the role of the appraiser because I know you you offer appraisals and I feel like that term is very different um, in the U.S. and in the U.K. and because you have experience in both places I'm just wondering if you could expand on the appraisal services you offer and also just kind of what goes into this process. Of course so in the U.S. um, I am USPAP compliant so on that vein, that means that I meet and have tested in established um, an established set of government regulated criteria um, that the government requires to submit reports to the IRS, but also elevate the status of your appraisal report. So every report meets these standards. Um, appraisals that need to go to the IRS are predominantly associated with donation and estate appraisals. And while USPAP is not necessarily required by other organizations, more and more of them are looking for appraisals with a USPAP qualification, um, including attorneys and insurance companies, because we are ascribing to some sort of regulation and standard, which will then also kind of translate into different areas. So if you, it, we have this level of criteria and qualification that we're able to say, yes, I know exactly 
how to approach this project. I know how to look at the artwork and I know how to assign the value, um, which is something that a lot of, it's difficult to get the hang of, but once you do, it's very important to the process and you want to make sure that like with USAP compliant, you USAP compliant appraisers have been tested and know how to ascribe values and where to look for those. Um, for proper provenance, obviously USAP compliant, as I've said now like 20 times, um, <laughs> but we offer also objective valuations, which are independent of auction houses or galleries, which can be vital to maintaining the exclusivity of your collection. Um, and then each of our reports include artwork examination. Um, in the pre-corona world, that would be in person. Um, and in the during corona world, usually digitally, but we ask for kind of a wide range of images to make sure that we're able to see the entire piece. Um, we do market research and analysis and um, reach a value through our in-depth understanding of the market. And then I hope that everyone has a provenance dossier to streamline the appraisal process mm. and potentially enhance the valuation um, and make my life a little easier. But we also currently are offering like a wide range of appraisal services. So anything that you would need an appraisal for, we work on and some that you don't know that you do. Um, we do insurance. Um, equitable distribution, like in cases of divorce, um, damage and loss, financial planning or resale, donation, and then state appraisal. And I guess what you do, I mean, I'm sure that when you start um, researching for provenance purposes, a lot of that kind of naturally leads into the research for the actual appraisal, like it really does go together. Yes, and they definitely go very hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, that perspective allows me to kind of approach appraisals from a different perspective because I'm able to look at the pitfalls that have already been avoided um, by certain documentations that you have or that might be encountered. So I'm able to kind of combine the two um, with the specialist training that not a lot of other appraisers will have. A lot of appraisers will do due diligence, obviously, but not have that in-depth um, vernacular and, and breadth of sources to, mm. to look at. And in the UK as well, like you're really, most, most people are probably going just directly to an auction house mm -hmm. or the dealer that represents that artist um mm -hmm. whereas i feel like that's such a huge difference here you're you for the most part the clients i work with you know they know exactly they, they go directly to the appraiser um unless they yeah. have you know a long lasting relationship with a big auction house already um mm -hmm. i feel like that's that's kind of a big difference as well isn't it yeah, and you want to, and another thing that's also interesting is that if a gallery is a direct representation for an artist, um, granted in the U.S., USPAP compliant appraisers are supposed to be without bias. So, yeah. but you just have to be careful of the idea that someone's not 
overvaluing, mm-hmm. um, which might help you immediately, but may be questioned later or yeah. could also could also just be kind of confusing to you when you go to resell and at a different location and people are like, well, this is absolutely not worth this much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really difficult. And I think having these conversations about kind of why all of this research and documentation and cataloging and mm-hmm. condition reports is so important. It just, yeah. you know, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult to explain sometimes. <laughs> It is. And it's kind of one of those things that you're like, oh, I'm going in circles again, aren't I? Yeah. 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 But, you know, in the end, not having documentation can be super detrimental to an appraisal or evaluation or an auction estimate. Yeah. Um, if, if a third party or secondary market seller will even consider selling it if you don't have the documentation. And that's kind of something that I think arises a lot with like second generation collectors um, and this idea of like, Oh, my dad bought this somewhere, but he never told us anything else about it. And then they've inherited this collection and they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you know, like we were saying about the contemporary collections, it's it's always just want to make sure that it's there and makes my life a lot easier when doing appraisals. I enjoy yeah. doing, I mean, I'll do it before an appraisal provenance research to help kind of bring it all together. And then it is able to kind of help that appraiser or the appraisal in the future. Mm. So just to kind of go back to your study of art history and obviously then coming into contact with, with different works from different time periods, is there mm-hmm. a particular time period or genre or artist that you are most drawn to? Mm-hmm. I'm very cliche. I <laughs> love French impressionism and post-impressionism and pretty any, pretty much anything coming out of France in the late okay. history. Um, kind of building on, you know, what I said before about kind of the history of how impressionism has all these different facets yeah. to it. Um, I was one immediately interested in the aesthetic perspective of these paintings. Like I love the color palette. I love the deviation from defined figures. Um, and I also am very interested in the historical context of each one mm-hmm. um, and the movement as a whole and how it adds and we continue to build off of it moving into later artistic movements. Like it was the, de- the original deconstruction of the image pushing us to abstract expressionism, um, minimalism, and even the ultra-contemporary work that we are seeing produced today. Mm. Well, it kind of changed the the perception and the the role of the artist completely. So without that Mm -hmm. kind of change in history that was happening um, in France and particularly Paris, where, you know, artists were making art for, for... art's sake and and being Mm -hmm. completely inspired in their own right rather than working either to commission or to the the kind of preset hierarchies of what they should be painting I mean Mm -hmm. that without that happening like you say none of these other genres would have would have happened and it happens today I mean it's like artists like Jeff Koons are like a kind Mm -hmm. of 
magnified version of that. So so much <laughs> we rely on now is on this kind of romanticized idea of an, an artist's idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. More than more so than the actual thing. It's about this this creative kind of um magic that we associate and this kind of celebrity idea of the artist that didn't really exist in the same way before the impressionists so yeah exactly and we had this idea it also marks kind of with the advent of modernism we get the idea of the masterpiece which wasn't something that was really well known or appreciated at the time I mean I remember doing research into Ong a while ago about how you know we have his certain set of famous paintings at the Louvre that we're obsessed with. But then when you look into it, or even the death of Marat, that there are different iterations all over the place because collectors would go into the studio and the artists would have up on easels the the images that they were willing to reproduce for you. And they yeah. might make slight changes to them based on your commission, but that none of them were usually standalone products. Yeah. Just, you know, obviously you're, you're so passionate about um, art and art history. And do you, do you collect art um, or objects yourself or do you plan to in the future? Um, I'm slowly but surely building what I think is going to turn out to be a very eclectic collection. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It currently consists of, fine art ceramics which I really got into when I was working um in Boston at a gallery there that focused Mm -hmm. heavily on fine art ceramics um I have photography and paintings by some emerging artists and I'm trying to keep it my collection is something that's like I'm sure it is for a lot of collectors you know deeply personal Mm -hmm. um and so as I build and try to figure out what my very, very specific collecting niche is. I try to be discerning in decision in my decision and, and choose only the works that I in, in kind of in keeping with that gardener, Isabel Stewart gardener idea that, that really resonate with me when I look at them for the first yeah. time. And you, you probably have everything beautifully um, catalog and it's ready to go and then finally and we're asking um all the guests to the the podcast the same last question and that is if you could own any work of art from any time period irrespective of cost and location what would it be oh gosh okay this is the question that whenever anyone asks you, you basically forget every work of art you've ever seen <laughs> and your mind goes completely blank. Um, I think for this instance and to kind of, you know, really bring my obsession with impressionism full circle, mm-hmm. I would pick um, Monet's La Japonaise, which is mm-hmm. at the MFA in Boston. Um, because kind of going hand in hand with my my gardener anecdote it was my how to phrase one of the first pieces that I was really physically moved by um, when I was younger because it was hanging on the wall and you walk up to it and you're kind of confronted first by 
this almost life-size portrait of the artist's wife. And it's contrasting her alabaster skin with this, this bright and illustrious red of a kimono. So like any good artist in the 19th century, he's really embracing Japanese mo. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, she's kind of swirling in this kimono. And when I would stand there and look at it, it looks as if the kimono and also the figure on her kimono is about to fly off into the room around you. And I was just completely taken with this effect. Like I would stand there and try to maneuver myself around the frame to see if there was actually some sort of three-dimensional aspect to it. Um, and that was one aspect of it. And then also it was kind of the first time that um, I'd seen an artist or an artwork where the figure was staring directly at me. And I've come to kind of identify this as my first encounter with the female gaze, which not that I even knew what it was, but I just knew that when I looked at her, um, I wasn't, I wasn't observing someone that didn't know I was there. It was almost as if we were having an exchange together. And it was, it was something that has really stuck with me. And now I'm that person that when you go to the museum, if there's, um, if there's a female gaze, I will like walk backwards to make sure that I and able to appreciate it in full. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, me too. Great. Me too. Thank you. Well, yeah, well this, thank you so much. This, it was just so fascinating. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at curaart.com and see you next week for another call with Kira.